Hey everyone, and welcome back to another Lunch Break with Kyle. Um, I, I would say part two is more like part one, because um, we did the intro to philosophy, and this is more like part one of a series of subcategories, would you say? I think so. Yeah. Anyway, this is my brother-in-law McKay. Hello. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Of course. Anytime. If you guys hear heard any large, large, boom, large booms in the background, there's fireworks. Everyone's safe. Yeah, we are in... We're near. We are near the Canadian border, and it's Canada Day as of recording. Which is so funny that's near ours. I feel like they still live. That's okay. I, I don't think they still <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay, so today's topic is ethics. That's right. You got some resources with you. I do. I brought books. my books. I brought my table of normative ethical theories. Yeah. And so, like any good philosophy, definitions and distinctions are in order. Right. So another term for ethics is moral philosophy. Okay. And if you listen to the way that some people tell the story, there have always been moral people. That is, people who know what kind of life to live or who do the right thing. But that doesn't mean that people were, strictly speaking, ethical. Okay. In the sense that they lived their lives according to a specific set of moral principles that they act from. Mm -hmm. So in a common person that you might think was the first ethical man was Socrates. Socrates has a set of moral principles that he follows and he refuses to bend under any circumstances. That might get a little complicated because Socrates says that he has some divine help, so Socrates special. I don't know, but point is, is may, there have been ethical uh, people ever since, let's say Socrates, but there have always been moral people, right? Right. So, and then another distinction that's important to make is between the good and the right. Mm -hmm. So, the good is... Let's start with the right. The right is easier. <laughs> okay. So the right is the right thing to do, right? What should I do? How should I act? Right? You have a situation and you need to know what's the choice that I should make among all the other ones. Is there a difference uh, between individual right and the community right? Like what is right for possibly what the community would think? Yeah. Or to what the individual thinks? Yeah, there definitely might be. And that's going to figure into those kinds of questions, right? Okay. So how should I act? How should my family act? How should my nation act? How should a group of nations act in war, in peace, and everything in between, right? right? Now, the good is more like how should you live, as it were. An example that my professor loved to use is Odysseus from the Odyssey, where Odysseus lies and the Homeric culture um, of ancient Greece was it real well somewhat and it's reflecting some kind of um, ethos but lying is okay if it serves your ends right and so something that's distinctive about Odysseus especially in the Odyssey is that he's really good at lying and for us it's bizarre uh, we just we can't <laughs> we're Romans we can't get how lying would be good you know, but Odysseus gets praised because he's able to spin a yarn that's believable. And when Athena, who's his patron goddess, 
she sees him lying and she's just, she just sort of thinks, oh, Odysseus, you know, and not in a bad way, but in a, ah, what a guy, you know, he's so good. No wonder I picked him, you know, as, as the guy to protect. And she appears before him and just, you know, gives up and says, all right, you, you know, this was really great. I like that. So for us, that doesn't make any sense. But what this means is that the good is more focused on the person, not the action, right? Okay. Odysseus is already a good person. And so his actions, in a way, flow from that goodness. I think of that does a pretty good job into going into uh, introducing us rather into our first ethical theory and that's virtue ethics so virtue ethics just seems to be the default moral theory by the way if you look at primitive peoples this is how they think of things and the world of america greece is an excellent example of primitive peoples you know i won't quite say barbarians and that's because i know greek and you know, that, that doesn't exactly mean what a lot of people think it to mean. But you have people who might not exactly be quite sophisticated mm-hmm. in the way that we think about it. So virtue ethics is the idea um, that the point of morality is to live a excellent and good life. So virtue is a Latin word. Uh, virtus or, or virtus if you're using a later pronunciation. It derives from a word that actually means manliness, which I think is kind of cool. And it's a translation of the Greek word, um, arete, and that also comes from a word meaning manliness. And that's because the virtue, the excellence of a man was to do the manly things. And that usually had to do with some kind of combat prowess, right? right? That you were good in battle. Protection. Yep. Mm. Absolutely. You could beat other people and make sure that your community and your family was safe. So... It later comes to me in a more philosophical discourse, and this applies equally well to arete as to uh, virtue. It means a general kind of excellence. So in a later or in an earlier Homeric time, your excellence was the sort of societal duty that you would fill. So the excellence of a king was defined, the excellence of a slave was defined, the excellence of a warrior, of a farmer, of a peasant, of a household keeper, swineherd. That was, how well do you do your duty? And eh, let's not use the word duty. How well do you perform your social function, mm-hmm. right? Now, when Plato and others arrive on the scene, they start to question that. I mean, the sophists do too and all of that. But basically, it's how well are you fulfilling your societal role? And it's very external as well, right? You could have the worst thoughts in the world, but in that scenario, if you're the greatest and the most beneficial, let's say, swine farmer, swine herder, you know, pig for those who don't know. Um, <laughs> for your community, then you're probably like regarded as like a great and virtuous man. Absolutely. Now, as it comes to be known, I think the most famous formulation of virtue ethics is by Aristotle, uh, the Nicomachean Ethics. This is really one of the great books ever written. Third edition. Well, so that's the third I have with me. Uh, the third edition that Terence Irwin has translated. Gotcha. So, the Nicomachean Ethics, Terence Irwin. The third edition, it has all the annotations and notes that you could want. It's very well translated. Terence Irwin is a um, brilliant historian of philosophy, especially of ancient Greeks. So the way that Aristotle starts it is basically by saying this. Hey, the goal of practical philosophy is to make you happy. Now, happiness is translated from a Greek word. Um, Eudaimon is the adjective. So if you're happy, and eudaimonia, that's a word that maybe some of your listeners have heard, is the word for happiness. 
Now, some say that you should really be translating it more along the lines of human flourishing. In modern times, happiness is conceived of more as an emotional state. Right. You know, I think Pharrell Williams' happy is a great example of that, you know, where it's this just light feeling. Whereas when the Greeks are talking about happiness, they have something very different in mind. So there's the great example of when Solon visits Greece. Solon was one of the seven wise men of ancient Greece. And uh, and um, he was um, one of his descendants is Plato on Plato's mother's side. So he had quite the posterity. We have writings from him. He was, he was definitely real. And he rewrote Athens' constitution on the provision that they wouldn't touch it for 10 years and that he would leave. And he did. And the Athenians went kind of crazy because they thought, wait, what? But he was gone for the consequences. <laughs> and so he fits into that stereotype of the ancient wise lawgiver. That's very common in ancient Greece. But he talks to Croesus, who's the king of Lydia. Maybe your great grandma or your grandma has said, oh, he's rich as Croesus. Croesus was known for being very rich. And Croesus shows Solon all of his things while Solon's on his 10-year hiatus. And he just says, hey, is there anyone as fortunate as me, as Croesus? And Solon says... Yeah, there is. <laughs> so Croesus basically says, okay, who? Now, uh, I encourage the listener to just to buy a copy of um, Herodotus's histories where this is told in detail just because, you know, it's good to read old books. And right. it's good to read, it's even better to read good old books. But Solon expresses a sort of ancient Greek ethos, and that's that you're not happy until you're dead. And that's the moral of the, of the various stories is count no man fortunate until he's dead. And so you have these people in these stories and they do the best thing that they possibly can to fulfill their role. They make their mom proud in one of the stories and then they die. You think we're very attached to life. Right. You know, yeah. And, you know, of course we wanted to live there too, but living a good life was very important. Anyway, this is all a background for what Aristotle's project is. So Aristotle says at the forefront of the Nicomachean Ethics, you know, this is about being happy. This is about flourishing. This isn't just about reaching an emotional state, but in living a good life overall, right? So when I say happiness in that ancient Greek context, keep that in mind that this isn't, man, if you're really good right now, but I'm living a satisfying and meaningful life overall. So Aristotle says, look, I can't tell you everything that you need to be happy. I can tell you some things though. If you are poor, you're not going to be happy. If you're a slave, you're not going to be happy. And um, so you need money, you need to be free, but there's so many things that go into it, I can't say. But this much I can tell you, and that's that in order to be happy, you need to be a good moral person. And so he says, I can tell you how to do that. Hmm. And so that's why he writes his book. It's thought, I don't know if this is confirmed, but um, Nicomachus was Aristotle's dad. It means uh, victory in battle or battle victory. And so then Aristotle's son was also named it. So it could be to his dad, but it seems more likely that it was to his, uh, one of his sons, uh, to Nicomachus. So, you know, this is a book from, from a father to a son, interestingly enough. And Aristotle has a lot of things to say. Again, it's very worth reading. And unlike a lot of Aristotle's works, this is a very readable book. And so I encourage your listeners to go out and get a copy or to get one from the library. So Aristotle says, um, among other things, that 
you need to aim for an excellent life, a flourishing life. How do you do that? You aim for what's called the mean, the golden mean, the middle point. So Aristotle says that, and he gives, I think he gives anger as the example, or courage might be one, where on the extreme edge of courage, you have recklessness, right? Just, hey, I'm just going to go jump off a cliff. I'm going to go charging first in battle. Right. right. Charging first in battle may seem courageous, but it also may seem really stupid. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, on the other end, you have cowardice, mm-hmm. right? So Aristotle says, no, courage is in the midway between cowardice and recklessness. Right. Maybe gluttony would be between a kind of parsimony, right? And gluttony. And so you have temperance between there and so on. So he says, you need to find the golden mean. You need to have live a moderate lifestyle, generally. This is going to make you happy. Now, Aristotle also says, look, there's some things that under no circumstances are correct. For, you know, adultery is never okay. You know, there's no, well, you know, midway between adultery. No, adultery is always bad, mm-hmm. right? And so this is one of the ways that Aristotle says that we need to live. Now, curiously, Aristotle says that you need to live a good, active life, and active physically, yes, active in the community. Aristotle just thinks that you're not going to be happy unless you are in a political life. Now, political means something slightly different to the ancient Greek, and especially to the ancient Greek of Aristotle's time, because uh, Greeks lived in a city-state, as you might remember from good old sixth grade. Yeah. And so you really had the chance to deliberate about what your community was going to do much more so than you would in the United States or, I mean, a lot of places. This was a pretty unique um, political setup, um, at least for the size and the power that the city-states were exerting. So he thinks that that's why you need to have these excellences so that you can interact well with your fellow man and woman too, but this was a society of men, to be sure. Uh, to be sure. So it's all about that. Now, you're probably thinking, well, it doesn't sound so bad. I mean, this is a good character-based system. How do you it's know? It's all action-based, though. It is, but, part. But, it's, but it's much more about what kind of a person you are, not what kinds of things do you do. Those are important, but you see that the priority is on the good and not the right. Right. We'll talk about the right more a little bit. So I'm just trying to think of... If someone is down in their luck, right, fire on their farm, farm's destroyed, right, I don't know what happens. Yeah. How does that person live happy? They know they can't contribute to the community immediately or in the way that they did before. What does that mean? And there's this idea, these kind of ideas weren't even, like, public knowledge, you know? Yeah. And it's hard to think, like, how is that person in the society that they were living in? I'm not not happy because I'm not contributing to to my community. Well, so Aristotle is also going to admit that some things just happen, you right. know. Uh, if you're sick, you're not going to be happy. It's another example. Right. You know. Um, in some ways, I think Aristotle can be a little s- sobering, since sometimes we make it seem like happiness is very much on us. There's the quote that maybe Abraham Lincoln said. I've never looked into it, but he probably didn't, since too many things are <laughs> quoted to Abraham Lincoln. Right. But if he didn't say it, he should have said it. And that is, most folks are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. Oh, yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, and yeah. so the onus is very much on us, where Aristotle would say, <laughs> you're not going to have this high emotional state of, man, life is good. Mm-hmm. If your farm burns down, that's really going to set you back. Right. What he would say is, look, 
if you're living a good life, that's something you can control, right? Right. That's something you can do. So if anything, when you're doing the, if your farm burns down, the neurosource says, okay, what's the golden mean, right? What do you need to do? And this is where Aristotle's account starts to come under criticism is that he doesn't really give you a good, this is what you need to do. And now in some ways that could be a strength because, or not a strength, but well, maybe a strength, but maybe also just a difference where we say, well, yeah, we said that this is a, the ancient way isn't necessarily what do I need, what action do I need to take, but what kind of person do I need to be? Right. But because we're so focused on that, then we tend to perceive that on as a flaw. I think in a lot of ways that virtue ethics is very inspirational. In a lot of ways, yeah, there's a golden mean, but another thing to do is to think, well, what would Jesus do? That is a virtue ethics kind of question where he's saying, what mm-hmm. kind of a life is good and I need to imitate that? Right. What would Gandhi do? What would Mother Teresa do? What would Albert Schweitzer do? You know, uh, you can look to moral exemplars. You know, what's Father Kolba going to do in this situation? What's the Buddha? What would the Buddha do? I also just think about what you said about mostly today when we say happiness is, is an emotion, right? But for a lot of people, especially, this is probably more, I mean, this is with women too, but I think predominant more with men, is what is your success look like? Yeah. And that in terms would maybe like an ancient version of what happiness would look like, right? You wake up at five every day, you work out, you, eat, you, you do a certain diet, you have a certain kind of job, mm-hmm. certain kind of wealth, stuff like that, right? And I mean, there's a, there's a female side of that as well, but I think it's more towards the man in most cases, but... There's, of course, that side, too. So oh, absolutely. Uh, that's interesting to kind of think about, too. And, and How it's kind of evolved, but not really at the same time. Well, and this is what I mean, where it seems like virtue ethics is the default moral way to think. Mm-hmm. Now, that just means the right way to think. Right. But, and for those who are wondering, well, does this look different for men or for women? I encourage you then to read a dialogue called The Meno or The Meno by Plato. And it starts off by saying, hey, can virtue be taught? Socrates asks me, you know, well, okay, is virtue different for a man or different for a woman? And they go back and forth and have a very interesting conversation. One of the best. It's only about 20 pages, so I definitely recommend it as a, a fantastic primer in philosophy generally. And because it's Plato, of course, it doesn't touch on just one thing, but many things. Now, that reminds me, Kyle, that a definition of virtue is also important. So when you say, hey, you have a virtue, unfortunately, usually when we talk about virtue, we mean sexual uh, chastity, right? Yeah, and the default. Yeah, and chastity mm-hmm. is important, but as I've mentioned before, the root word means something more like manliness, mm-hmm. and excellence is what it comes to mean. Now, um, virtue is a habitual inclination to act in a certain way and to lead a certain kind of life, not a one-off moral action. Now, something I really like about this is the idea that, hey, if you tell a lie, some people think, I, you know, I blew it, right? This is awful. Now I'm a liar. Whereas a virtue ethicist such as Aristotle would say, no, that's like saying if you drink alcohol once you become an alcoholic. Right. Alcoholics are people who don't have control, right? Who have the inclination, well, maybe they don't have the inclination, um, but they aren't able to control their alcohol intake. Whereas the sober person isn't the person who never drinks alcohol, but is a person who's able to control himself. Right. Um, now, abstinence is easier than moderation. Um, it's easier to eat no ice cream than eat a little bit of ice cream, yeah. right? But if you are a healthy person and you've learned to be healthy, then you've learned to act in a habitual way. So to finish off Aristotle's account, you need to have something called phronesis, and that's called practical reason. 
children can't be virtuous, Aristotle says. Now, it doesn't mean that children can't perform good actions, but right. what Aristotle means is that kids don't have wisdom. They're not able to really reason very well about what kinds of lives are good to live. They just haven't lived long enough to do that. When you see, too, their brains are developing, they don't, sometimes they don't know how to make critical decisions. Yeah. Right? Well, you know, the where we're staying, there's a zip line that we've done, right? And some <laughs> yeah. of the older kids know to get out of the way, and the three-year-old doesn't know which way to go and just stares. Something's yeah. stairs, and you have to literally move them out of the way. And then you have the baby who's oblivious to anything that's not in front of her face. Exactly. So exactly. there's also that, too, that they don't, have, they don't have the brain capacity yet. It's still developing. Exactly. And yeah. Aristotle, uh, even though he's not very well loved among uh, feminist scholars for some uh, fairly misogynistic things he said, I think that he said some very good things about the family. He thinks that the, both parents have to be very involved in the rearing of the child and in order to help um, children grow up in a good way. Um, so Aristotle's good in the family, but maybe not on women. But hey, Marx was also uh, good on the family, but not good to women. <laughs> There's, yeah. He's a bit of a philanderer. Mm-hmm. So you need to develop a practical wisdom. And Aristotle would also say, look, you can't define what it is. I mean, if you don't know it, I don't know what to tell you. Not that you don't know, but rather, look, you just figure these things out. Mm-hmm. It's just a part of maybe the construction of our consciousness. I don't know. And so... I mean, we easily say people have common sense, people don't. Yeah, we do. That's somehow innate and, well, social skills, I mean, that's a little bit different, but some people have it innately with them, some people don't. I think, well, it's tough to think what Aristotle would think generally. Um, um, Aristotle thinks that some people are naturally slaves, and what he means by that, probably, is that some people just have the disposition to be slaves, and so in some ways he's radically limiting it. So, and by, I bring that up because, well, would he say that everyone has phrenesis? Uh, I don't, I think maybe he wouldn't think that women would, but I bet if you, I mean, there just may be a passage mm-hmm. that says, yeah, women don't have it and men do, but. Well, and humans are always trying to label things and figure stuff out. Oh, it's true. Right, make mind patterns and things. So it's not, it is radical, but I don't blame him for trying to figure stuff out. Oh, d- definitely. And Aristotle's probably one of the most brilliant men who ever lived. And he lived. wasn't a dictator, um, so. No, he wasn't. Um. <laughs> Yeah, it was the gain of power to force those things. But he was one of Alexander the Great's tutors. Hmm. So an inter- one of the most interesting lines of intellectual history ever is Socrates is the teacher of Plato, and Plato is the teacher of Aristotle, and Aristotle is the teacher, tutor, though for not very long, of Aris, of um, Alexander the Great. Hmm. And they were apparently pretty good friends because on his conquerors, his conquerors um, travels, Alexander would actually send back samples of the different flora and fauna that he'd see for Aristotle. Hmm. And so, but Aristotle was himself a very remarkable man. Um, he would basically put his toga up and stand in the uh, water and just look at mussels and write about them and draw pictures of them and, and whatnot. He'd interview fishermen and farmers and find out what they would say. So one example of this is that um, although he didn't see it, Aristotle heard from a fisherman that octopus would reproduce with one of their tentacles, and I think he just said, well, you know, I, I heard it, I haven't seen it, but one said it. Anyway, I think for a lot of human history, people thought, mm, okay, whatever, that's weird, that, that's, that, that's not how that works, you know, we know how this works, that's right. not how that works. Well, come to find out with closer observation that that is how that works. Hmm. And so Aristotle was renowned for his very good powers of observation and for very empirical way of observing the world. But back to virtue ethics, and my point with all this is that 
you you have this you have this kind of practical reason, and you're able to reason through actions. There's also something called the practical syllogism, and I don't want to go into what a syllogism is now, nor do I think I can explain it. It's been a little too long since I've taken logic. I'm embarrassed to say, but the point is that Aristotle has a way for you to think through moral decisions. You know, you have the golden mean. You can think about, hey, this is what I want to do, and this is the kind of life I want to live. Uh, a different example is someone whom we should know, and that's Plato. He identifies four virtues, and these are called the cardinal virtues. Justice, fortitude, temperance, and prudence. Another word for temperance is moderation. Another word for fortitude is um, courage, prudence, that's wisdom. So now if you've heard of the seven deadly sins, very unfortunately, you've probably never heard of the seven cardinal virtues. So you've heard four of them. Do you know what the other three are? Nope. So those are the four cardinal virtues, Ooh. and then there are the three theological can, virtues. Can I guess? Yeah. Okay. So we write it fortitude, prudence. What was the other two? <laughs> uh, so, of course, with the rule of four is that you always forget one. And so we have justice, <laughs> fortitude, temperance, prudence. Justice. What was the other Sorry, one? justice, temperance, temperance wisdom, wisdom, and courage. And courage. Okay, so I'm guessing three more. Yeah. So, do you want a hint? Yeah. So these are the four cardinal virtues. There are three theological virtues. This is St. Augustine. He, he reads, and these are from the scriptures, and he says, hey, we have these four cardinal virtues, and then we have these three theological virtues from Paul. Mm -hmm. So now we've got seven, and that's a perfect number. So we have the seven cardinal, or the seven virtues, and then there are the seven deadly sins. I'm going to be way off. I know it. Charity? That's one of them. Heck yeah. Okay. Patience? Uh, that's already basically included in moderation. Okay, I kind of thought it was. Dang it. Okay, so I got charity. Um, what else is there? No, that's it. I got charity. I got one. What's the other two? Faith and hope. Faith and hope. Okay, I was guessing. So I was, faith, hope, and I was charity, thinking yeah. of faith, and I just didn't want to do it because <laughs> I thought I was too religious. Well, but those they're the three theological virtues. Oh, which kind of fits those. Okay. Yeah. So if you like this, then you're in my boat. I really think that virtue ethics is basically the right way to go. I think that this is how kids learn how to act, where you say, hey, what would, what would Jesus do? What would your grandma do? What would mom do? Mm -hmm. And this is just how kids learn how to be moral and right. how to do the right thing. And that there is a certain way in which we, have, we develop good judgment over time and we get pretty good at exercising it. That doesn't mean that there aren't moral gray zones and things where it's not clear. But Aristotle has presents this very good view of, look, you need to practice. And if you don't get it right, that's fine. Just practice. That's what this is about. So was Aristotle in the mindset of that people are just born a certain way then? Like mm, even if more? they could do anything about it, they, they can't do have all the seven virtues, four virtues back then? No, I think it's I think Aristotle would say the following. He does say the, that it's really hard to become moral. Mm-hmm. And I, the older I get, the more I realize that Aristotle's just right on this. That is, it's hard to become a good person. And what Aristotle thinks is a good person is you habitually act in a good way, right? It takes work to do it. It does. Right? And Aristotle think that, thinks that a lot, of that works is in, a lot of that work is in childhood, that you have to train your children to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And that if you don't, it's not impossible, but it's pretty difficult. Right. And so if you've thought of how hard well, it is to change, and then again, just that's the point. And again, just before, the brain's developing, and all that gray matter that is yep. still moldable. 
Yeah. Right? That's why kids can learn swimming languages when they're younger. Yeah. Because they absorb so much. So it's the same thing with those actions too. And the funny thing is that speaking of Aristotle's good observational skills, science has really vindicated him in, in this respect, namely that we know that, like you said, the brain is very moldable, especially at a young age. And it becomes more difficult to change over time, but it's still possible, right? Yeah, Neuroplasticity. Possible. You know, mm-hmm. you can quit alcohol, you can quit drugs, you can quit porn, you can quit your sugar addictions, right? You can right. change these things. It's just harder. But it's impossible. Yeah. And so that's why Aristotle thinks a lot of the groundwork happens when you're young. Yeah. Um, Plato might think that you might be born a certain way. People think that way today. Because as you and I both know, serving our missions in Germany, yeah. people ask us all the time, is Hitler in hell? <laughs> We'd say, well, we have a very different view about that. Um, I would always say, I'm not the judge, right? Yeah, that's an easy one. But in a ph- philosophical sense, are some people born a certain way? Yeah. I mean, they are and they aren't, right? People have their personalities, of course. I, so, can everyone obtain being having those seven virtues in well, philosophy? That's what I like about virtue ethics is that Aristotle and others who are advocates of virtue ethics would say, look, all of us are born with a certain array. Mm-hmm. This is a very good way to analyze fiction and to analyze characters, for instance. So in one of my favorite YouTube videos, he does an analysis of superheroes, actually, of, among others. And he talks about how the cardinal virtue of... Batman is his fortitude. He can encounter any obstacle and he will keep fighting, right? Yeah, Superman. Yeah. Well, on Superman, on the other hand, his cardinal virtue is uh, temperance. Don't you mean hope? Uh, that's, that's one of the seven theological... That's one of the three theological. But right. Superman always has to control himself because he can do anything. And yeah. If he can do anything, then the temptation to become a bad person is so much greater, right? right? And so Superman's great virtue is that he's able to be moderate, right? Hmm. That's so funny. So let's go with some problems. Like I said, I tend to think of myself in the virtue ethics camp. But here's some problems. So a meta-ethical problem, that is when you're looking at ethics from 10,000 feet and thinking, how does this work philosophically? It's actually a bit difficult to say what's a moral virtue and a non-moral virtue. One criticism of Aristotle's system, for instance, is that it's a little too generic because the virtue of a knife is that it cuts well. The virtue of a human is that it, he, she, well, you know, is being a good dancer as good as being a honest person. I mean, you would think that there's something better about being an honest person, but the way Aristotle sets things up, it's not exactly clear how you can say that, right? Mm-hmm. It's also difficult to define a virtue. It, all, it seems like they're always context-dependent. And if you're able to define a virtue without using circular reasoning, well, good, you figured it out. So that is, well, why should I be honest? Well, look at virtuous people. Look at Jesus. He's an honest person. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, why is it good that Jesus is an honest person? Well, and so on. You know, right. you, you probably have to say, well, because Jesus is a good person. Well, isn't he a good person because he's honest? Okay, now you've circled back. You've made yeah. a circle, right? And then there's um, an epistemic objection, right? So remember, epistemology is the question of how do we know things, right? right. What is knowledge and so on? What is, a virtu- what is a virtuous person or who is a virtuous person? So we say it's someone like Jesus, but... The way that Jesus is virtuous is very different from the ancient Greek context. For instance, humility is not a Greek virtue. Now, in some ways... Uh, like that makes sense though, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so hubris is a vice, to be sure. 
uh, you shouldn't be blatantly arrogant, but name calling, boasting about your own strengths, as long as you don't surpass a certain level, then that's fine. Um, So we might say that Jesus is a virtue, but that's more Christians. I mean, in certain ways, there are certain moral fads come in and out of style. Now I think that there are responses to this and that there is a pretty good through line throughout history of who's a good virtuous person, who's not. But that's a potential problem is who's a virtuous person? And if we're saying he or she is virtuous for these reasons, well, is that really the virtues, the excellences, or isn't it because they all follow a good moral code? That doesn't seem like they're now doing virtue, if that makes sense. So you get into circular, well, what is virtue now? Well, it's what Jesus does. Well, why is what Jesus does virtue? Well, it's because he's honest and good. Well, if he's honest and so on, right? Right. Big part of that is context. Yeah. Without and, context, then it's kind of hard. It's really hard to define. And if you, and if that's what it is, then is that really morality? Another problem is moral narcissism. And that's, and this is something that, for instance, is a group called care ethicists um, or ethics of care advocates might level with Karen? Karen ethics. Well, <laughs> I'm going to let that one slide, but I have my own feelings about care ethics. So if, if it's based on, hey, this is what I think I should do, how I should be virtuous, then you're hearing a lot of eyes, right? Hear a lot of Karen so far. <laughs> <laughs> Those people are like, you're parked in the wrong spot. This is my spot. They're like, that's a public street. I park wherever I want. No, no, no. Let's see. Um, I think they're right. So I'm looking at my notes and uh, a good friend of mine, she brought up one of her roommate's boyfriends. And this is what I has in my notes. Who would always do the dishes, but not because he was concerned about uh, them, that is her and her roommate, but because he wanted to be a good person. So many of our moral problems boil down to what is the right thing to do? Oh. Or how can I help this person? Whereas virtue ethics isn't actually trying to answer those questions necessarily. Yeah, because I've said at work a couple of times that, hey, I want to develop you as a person because I care about you. But it's also good for me as well that I can, I can, it shows that I can develop people. Yeah. I say that blatantly because I'm like, this is two-sided. Because if you, if, you, if you fail, then I fail too. Yeah. But, so it's kind of like half on half. But that's hard to, doesn't really fit perfectly in that hole, does it? Yeah, um, yeah, and so if it turns out that there's a kind of selfishness that goes into it, mm-hmm. it's a problem, you right. know. But then again, I think if you're really trying to be virtuous, that isn't a problem. But this is an objection that people have raised. Um, it also seems kind of difficult for people to apply ethics, morality, without general moral principles. So, you know, instead of saying, hey, don't steal... Say, or if you tell people, hey, don't steal, but rather, well, would Jesus steal? Mm. Some people just say, I don't know, I could think of a, you know, know, they'll try to get out of it. Again, I don't think you're trying to be virtuous, but, and then let's do one more and then move on to another one. It seems difficult to apply this to nations. For instance, we talked about that. So families, maybe you can do that. You could think of a virtuous family. The Old Testament's not going to give you any examples. Uh, The Old Testament is about uh, dysfunctional families. (laughs) Um... In a good way, but what's the virtue of a nation? I mean, yeah, there's the excellence of a nation. Maybe you'd say that the excellence of America is its entrepreneurial spirit. Is Switzerland virtuous because they've they've never participated in a war? But are they not virtuous because they didn't help out in a war? Yeah, well, I know what what Germans and Austrians think about that answer. (laughs) Exactly. 
But I guess that's a, that's a question, right? By the way, to our Swiss um, listeners, I, I do love Switzerland. Yeah, no, I, I'm just thinking Switzerland's <laughs> great. We love Switzerland. I'm yeah. just giving an example. I, I've lived there. Yeah. And I quite love Switzerland. Um, but <laughs> but to our German and Austrian listeners, I also love Germany and Austria. Yes, um, me too. <laughs> so leaders themselves can be virtuous, like... George Washington was a virtuous man. I, I will not listen. I, I just won't take you seriously if you try to claim that George Washington was not virtuous. He was a moderate leader in a yeah. time when that was needed. Yeah. Um, but how does a nation act virtuously in foreign affairs, right? You say, well, what would Sparta do? What would, what would ancient China do? And you think, that's, I don't know, it's just a weird question to ask. Well, it's hard, too. There's so many wheels moving, so many people involved. Exactly. That every single one of those people can be the most, or even on the same level of, of you know, virtuosity. Definitely. I mean, if you're the president of, of Ghana, let's say, mm-hmm. what to saying, well, what would Jesus do in my situation? I mean, in some ways, that, that could definitely help, right? You could think, yeah. well, I'm sure he would do this program and this program, but at the end of the day, well, should I set up this trade with, with Ivory Coast as opposed to um, Nigeria? Well, I don't know. It, it might not be clear, for instance. Yeah. So those are some um, criticisms. And I'm looking at our time, and I don't. I thought that we'd <laughs> be going somewhere else by now. Sorry. So to be clear, virtue ethics dominates and has dominated. I mean, we're talking from ancient times to... Oh, I don't know about the 1800s. It's virtue ethics is the main player in right. the in the in the ethical theories game. But let's talk about one that we touched on before, and that's nah. Let's talk about hedonism. We got to talk about hedonism because so many people are hedonists and they don't know it, and they don't know that hedonism isn't a very good moral theory. So um, hedonism comes from the Greek word hedone, which means pleasure. So okay. hedos is the adjective form. So the idea is that you should, well, pursue pleasure. Now, what does that end up looking you should like? Pursue pleasure? Yeah. Oh, okay. Pleasure is the good. So you're probably, Kyle, thinking, what? So you eat, you drink, you be merry. Well, maybe. So the ancient hedonists included Aristippus. Aristippus was a student of Socrates, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them. And I wish we had his writings. We have some sayings that are attributed to him, and they probably weren't his. But he thought that you should have the longest and most intense pleasure for the longest time that you could. And that you should avoid pain as much as possible. Hmm. Well, that's, just, that's just not practical. No. Um, Plato in the Gorgias, an incredible dialogue, if you get the chance to read it, it's really brilliant. Gives the example of a sieve, you know, a colander, we might say in modern times, a yeah. strainer of a kind. And that is, look, you can try to fill it up with water. It's always going to flow out. And that's yeah. what pleasure's like. And you might know this, especially the older you get. Like, look, you just don't get much pleasure from eating a bunch of ice cream anymore. You know? Oh, no, I don't. I can't even fill my bowl anymore. It's yeah. so sad. I have to do like two, three scoops and I'm like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. It just, it, you just don't get much pleasure from it. No. Um, and this is, this is, goes to Plato's point that is if you put limits on yourself and the amount of pleasure that you experience, then your, the pleasures you do experience end up being better. Okay. Yeah. Well, Plato's not the only one to realize this, but Epicurus did as well. Epicurus was a brilliant philosopher, a generation or two after Plato. Hmm. And he believed that what you should strive for is not so much the maximization of those visceral pleasures, 
like sex, drugs. Well, they're, eh, I mean, they're kind of drugs back then, but not like we think of. But to we, use another example, drug sex, drug. Yeah, we were drugs nowadays. <laughs> yeah, sex, drug, binge-watching Netflix. But he thought that what you should do is increase moderate pleasures. So friendship, the enjoyment of food, mm. virtuous, or, or being virtuous. I mean, Epicurus is very clear. If you hear people say Epicurean... And you think, oh, yeah, a sinner. Well, no, Epicureans were very clear that you had to be virtuous to be happy. Mm. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. It seems like everyone has known this forever. Like, you can't be happy unless you're a good person. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny, too, that that shows a sense of control. When yes. You, when you place in moderations, you're in control. And when you have control, you feel good. Oh, definitely. You have the power. And part of right? that, of course, is controlling yourself, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Not just the situation. So Epicurus thinks that you should moderate or you should minimize pain and you should be in a state of equanimity. The ancient Greek word is ataraxia. Ataraxia. A neat word. So the hedonist has a pretty good uh, datum point. And that is, look, we all want to be happy. And I know one way to be happy and that's to experience pleasure. So there you go. That's a pretty good point in their favor. Um, and John Stuart Mill in his book, I believe it's called Utilitarianism. Um, he says, look, everyone understands that being happy and experiencing pleasure is part of the good. Mm-hmm. And you're going to pursue it no matter what. It, it, it's a pretty rare person who will say, no, I'm not going to do what makes me happy. Right? Not only that, but it's also pretty easy to think about how this works as well. What, what makes you happy? Well, then do that. There you go, right? But there's also consequences. Okay, so now we're getting to the problems. Mm-hmm. This view just can't work. Yeah. Not not ultimately. Some of the greatest pleasures and joys of our life, they come unexpectedly. And this is what philosophers and psychologists call the, the paradox of hedonism. And we don't always, and hey, maybe it's even rarely, do we know what makes us happy. As often as not, when we act in ways that we believe Will make us happy we actually find that the action won't make us happy so one example is hey you're young you're a teenager you eat a bunch of ice cream you think hey this is great and then you know you just turned 31 right kyle yes and you think this ain't doing it chief right mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not making me happy or yeah, i know some of those people though who are always pursuing what makes them quote unquote happy, happy. yeah and but they're just burning bridges left and right yeah yeah, so this is why... Because it's very individual. Exactly. No consequences for me, but for others. Well, and this is why Aristippus can't be right, is look, yeah. you can't ju- you can't live in a community like also, this. Also, that name sucks. Aristippus? Aristippus. Aristotle's great, Socrates' great. Aristippus? No. Shouldn't follow that guy. <laughs> um, it means golden horse, in case you were interested. <laughs> or, no, sorry, not golden horse. That would be Chysippus, uh, but... Uh, Chysippus, but this this means a best horse. Best horse? Yeah. Nice. He's a horse. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's what it was all along. He was a horse. He was a horse. We should have known. <laughs> we should have known. Always chasing that carrot. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this just can't work. You just can't live with other people like this. You can't. Um, and probably one of the best examples, and one that my professor gave me when I took my ethics class, when I took another ethics class with him, was kids are a super good example of how they make you happy and they make you sad and you do it anyway, mm-hmm. right? You have kids. Especially now since you can basically choose. But... You could always choose. Epicurus, by the way, uh, advised against having kids. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Hmm. I don't know how he thought the human race would go on, but... Yeah, I don't know how that works. But he did the calculus right and thought, no, in the long run, it's too much trouble. Don't even have sex. Just avoid it. so funny. Yeah. Friendship is better, he thinks. I mean, friendship is great. Yeah, friendship is great. Yeah. But talking about the four loves, that's a different topic. So happiness seems to be complicated, more complicated even, than hedonists tend to make out. Mm. And that's why hedonism, in my mind, just can't be correct. So hold on. Currently, today, people like hedonism? I think that if you ask your average guy, your average gal, right? hey, what kind of a life are you going to live? It's like, well, it's the kind of life where I want to be happy. And now, I think that there's a bit of a dichotomy between the virtue ethics, hey, I want to live a good, flourishing, meaningful life, right. and I want to do what is pleasurable. Because a lot of people still say, well, I want to have a family, I want to have a good job that contributes to the community where I have enough money to enjoy. But I think especially teenagers, right? It's, <laughs> yeah, man, hookers and cocaine. <laughs> like, yeah, have you ever seen the YouTube video of the guy who wins the... The lottery and the reporter <laughs> oh, says, Hey, what are yes. you gonna do? He's like, Hookers and crack. And, and the reporter just goes, Oh, okay. Oh, gosh, yeah. And yeah, um, yeah the, the guy had a girlfriend and she wasn't very happy at that response. Right. But that's the hedonistic idea is, Hey, I'm gonna give me what gives me that real big pleasure. Right. right. Instant gratification. So you're gonna get some problems. And this is already the problem that we get with that we were just talking about. So Aristippus says, hey, this is pleasure. And Epicurus says, this is pleasure. Well, who's right? You know, Epicurus makes a pretty good practical argument that, hey, look, this isn't sustainable. Maximize long-term pleasures, right? Having a friend for a long time is much more pleasurable mm-hmm. than uh, banging a whore, you know? Sorry, I mean that in a technical sense of prostitute. Um, sex worker. A sex worker. A prostitute. So <laughs> another one is a another thing that Mill did. So Mill says that there are higher pleasures and that there are lower pleasures, right? Um, and one that a different professor used was he says, look, the experience of falling in love is incredible. It's amazing. There's no amount of ice cream or money that you would say, hey, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. And I'll give that up for falling in love with my wife was the example he gave. And of course, in class, we said, I don't know, man, I can think of some pretty good ice cream, right? But now, that seems to be a pretty good argument, but that didn't seem obviously true. You know, mm. so Mill makes the argument, I tend to think it's a pretty good one, but it doesn't seem decisive in the way that Mill thinks it might be. And so, again, with hedonism, you just have a hard time getting that, hey, what's a good life, and then what should I do? It just seems to go against what we think and what we generally hold morality to be and to work with. So those are some problems with hedonism. I want to do. I want to see if we can't hit one more. I mean, maybe there's gonna to have to be a part two of, do of ethics. But this which is, wouldn't be bad. I think that's a huge one. Yeah, when I think and people love this and yeah, yeah, this is the philosophy that touches our lives the most. I think is ethics yeah. and political philosophy. Mm-hmm. Now we talked a bit about this before, and this is a broad topic. It's called theonomic ethics which is a Greek word, um, theos is God and nomos is law or custom. So this is ethics that have to do with God. Yeah, ethics that come from God. There are basically two branches of this divine command theory, which we had touched on before, and something called the theological voluntarism. So divine command theory is that what God says is right, and that's what you have to do. So God says, thou shalt not kill. And that's why that's wrong is because God said so. 
So moral actions are they're either permissible or prohibited by God's commands. So God says, hey, you can't kill. Hey, you need to pay tithing. Hey, you need to love your neighbor. Hey, you can't charge interest. You get that in a lot of religious ethical codes, um, which I think is interesting. So they could be boiled down to just a religious leader almost, or just a leader in general. Yeah, so the law of Moses is a really great example where Moses has these commandments from God, and the rabbis will take this over time in Judaism, and they'll talk about that. Islam has a maybe... um, well, I don't know if it's a better example, but it's a similar example where I think there are five, at least five different ways of thinking about what the law, um, what Sharia law can do. So for instance, it can be prohibited. It can be um, commanded. You have to do this. You can't do this. It can be neutral. Hey, either way, it can be recommended or it can be not recommended. Hey, mm-hmm. you, you know, you can or you don't have to. Right. Now, under a strict divine command theory view, though, if God doesn't talk about it, it's morally neutral. Now, if you think about just the the Bible and the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Greek Bible, well, there's a lot of things that um, you get from it, but there's a lot of things it doesn't talk about. So, for instance, abortion is never explicitly addressed in the Old and New Testament. Right. It's not. And so if you think that God has said that there's no abortion or that abortion is not permissible under any circumstances, I would say, okay, where do you get that? Now, there are ways of reasoning to get to that point, but you're not getting it as an explicit commandment. So you're probably already seeing some of the weaknesses here. Yeah. Now, in some ways, there are, there are strengths. And that is that, hey, if God says you can't do it, well, there you go. Easy enough. This mm-hmm. is a good way to teach kids ethics, right? And this is, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, sometimes you hear, well, that would make Heavenly Father happy. And it's like, I think you're just, <laughs> I think it's just uh, guilting the kid. That I don't know if that's going to work in the, <laughs> the wrong way. Right. But morality is unambiguous in that respect where, hey, there's a clear line. It's explicit. And it's easy to explain for all ages. Um, good, good and bad accord with God's will. And no one escapes from God in the end, which is nice, right? That, hey, there's punishment. This reinforces your beliefs in morality. Like, hey, I know I'm doing the right thing. The people who are wrong, they're going to get it in the end. It's universally applicable, right? And you don't have to make moral decisions. You don't have to reason about it because you already know, because mm-hmm. God has mentioned it. It's a communal endeavor. You're living in a community with people who believe in the same things. Well, you see it in like Western and Eastern Africa, those highly, highly religious places. Mm-hmm. As a community, they're all very happy, very friendly, very nice. Yeah. Because they believe that that's the God's will. Yeah. Now, to be clear, so that's divine command theory. There's also the theological voluntarism. And this is a way to try to rescue some problems with divine command theory. So theological voluntarism is the idea that, yes, if God says something that's wrong, that's wrong. But voluntarism, the word for um, the will in Latin is voluntas, voluntas with the later pronunciation. And voluntarism tries to say that if God wills it, it's wrong too. So if if you think abortion's wrong and you, and, and then someone says, well, where does it say that in the Bible? You say... Well, it's not the Bible, but God wills it such that abortion not happen, and therefore it's wrong. So, yeah, there are there's there's a bit more degree of flexibility. It doesn't just have to be what's stated in the Ten Commandments and the mm-hmm. Law of Moses, but also 
Yeah, God doesn't want this to happen either, so he doesn't have to say it. It's also based in his will. Well, you can probably already see that there's a problem in that. Okay, well, how do I how do I know what his will is? So if he tells me through divine means, well, can he, does he tell everyone like that? Right, especially if you're following a leader, are they virtuous or not? Yeah, definitely. And this becomes a... Okay, and already you're probably seeing how this is going to fall apart, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you believe in the Ten Commandments... I don't know. I think everyone tends to agree that the commandments are actually a pretty good guideline. But let's let's use Sharia law and Islam, and let's use Jewish law. So these are two law systems. They're very well developed and very well thought out. But yeah. for me, I'm neither Jewish nor Muslim, right? Right. And most of the people I know aren't Jewish or Muslim. And so are they bound by that? Well, if you're a divine command theorist, you think, yeah, that's what morality is. But isn't it kind of weird to think that what's right and what's wrong was determined by God on Mount Sinai at that time, you know, maybe before, maybe it was always in his mind, but people didn't know about it until then. And so if you're in medieval China and you didn't know that you weren't allowed to worship other gods, sucks to suck, right? <laughs> now, to be clear, um, there are ways around this in Judaism and whatnot. So this isn't a criticism of Judaism, right? This is a right. criticism of divine command theory. Right. You know, if, if God says, hey, this is what's right and this is what's wrong, well, if you don't know that because you're you're in, um, in well, not Canada, but in, in the Americas, well, sorry, you never heard about that. Now, I think that that's pretty bad. I think that there's a pretty good answer from Catholicism that we can talk about in another one. When you said that, it reminded me of the time I mentioned when I was teaching um, a group of Muslims, mm-hmm. and they were very nice. You know, very cordial. Um, but eventually the group turned from a group of two people to a group of about 15. Mm-hmm. We were almost bombarded, which was not very nice for two to, you know, to go against two 19-year-old Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in a German language that we were still learning, right? Yeah. But he said, you were born in America, right? You don't know anything about Islam at all. Therefore, I need to save you. Otherwise, you're going to be lost forever. Yeah. And he's like, I was born in the right country, the right time. And so I'm saved. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm saying that you can choose, no matter where you live, that you have infinite chances or a lot of chances to choose the right path. Right? That's a, yeah. There's really just, you know, um, differences there. But it, it kind of reminds me of the, of the ideology that you just explained. Well, and this is another problem. And by the way, uh, not all of not all Muslims obviously believe this. It seems no, like there's different factions of it, of course. Definitely. Yeah. And, uh, the, the Islamic poet theologian. And he was still Rumi nice and cordial, just religious oh, like, sure. ideology. Yeah. yeah. So, and that's that. There can be religious extremism and extreme intolerance on the part of religious believers. Um, you know, you're not going to use public, what's called public reasoning. And that is like, look, I'm not going to reason with you. Like, God has told me. Mm-hmm. We're done here. Right. That. The homeless guy in the street corner is Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it pretty hard to live in a community if you have people who think that way. Unless you're all the same. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so Israel right now is starting to experience this problem because there are lots of, um, there are plenty of um, extremist Jews who live there who think like, no, uh, Palestine is ours, you know? Right. Um, yeah, the rights of the Palestinians be damned, you know? So some other problems, and then we're probably gonna have to wrap it up with this. So if you're a theological voluntarist and you say, hey, this is the will of God, well, how do you know? You know, right. <laughs> and how are you gonna tell other people what that is? Because at least with the Ten Commandments, you know, you can say, here you go, mm. pray about it, think about it, and you'll get somewhere. If it's just the will of God that makes things right and you need to know what that is, then 
okay, well, if a religious leader says that, then again, we come to the problem of, okay, well, he's not my religious leader. Like, why would I, why would I take him seriously? Mm-hmm. To me, the biggest problem with divine command theory is that morality is, is dependent on the will of God. We talked about this with the Euthyphro dilemma, right? And so we don't need to repeat that. But basically, look, it just, you, you can't tell me that rape is permissible under any circumstances. Right. You know, there's no way. You can't torture children for fun. You can't drown kittens because you feel like you want to, you know, right. these are just things that are not permissible under any circumstances. Uh, Aristotle's example, right? There's no midway point of a little bit of adultery. Adultery is just always wrong, hmm. period, you know? Right. And so this really freaked out some Christians because philosophers, as I had mentioned before, like Duns Scotus and William of Ockham said, well, yeah, it is that way. And then Christians came out later and said, nope, that is not how that works. Morality, <laughs> it may be dependent on God, but it's dependent on his intellect, not his will. Mm-hmm. And in this version, it seems like if God changes his mind, that's all there is to it. So you'd be able to explain, for instance, the sacrifice of Abraham, because you could say, well, God said it was okay. So it was okay for Abraham to kill his son. And then he just changed his mind. And so it was wrong and it was right. But then you think, whoa, that's not how, that's not how I thought this all worked, you mm-hmm. know? And so basically no serious moral philosophers, religious or otherwise, are committed divine command theorists. You'll find some, I think, around theological voluntarism, but divine command theory is more a pretty unsophisticated, unreflective way about thinking about um, ethics and God. It is funny, though, how when you explain these in great detail with philosophers, you know, through the ages and how they're defining things that um, are human nature or human nurture. Yeah. um, And to see it manifested in day to day life like. What what have you what what have we talked about today that you've seen in your own life? You'll start noticing things. You're like, hey, wait, I have lived this before. They may not know that they are this specific, you know, type of ethics person, but they're acting in a way like such. Absolutely. And here are the cons against it. Yeah, and one example, for instance, is that Joseph Smith allegedly said, "Hey, whatever God says is right, and we have to do it." But then he also says in the King Fault discourse that God has to obey certain laws himself. Right. And so in one place, it sounds like he's on the divine command theory, like, hey, whatever God says is right. Whereas on the other, it sounds like he's appealing to something greater, mm-hmm. a kind of virtue ethics, yeah, in that, hey, there are certain excellences that God lives by that he becomes God and we become gods by being that kind of way. Anyway, I think that virtue ethics and Latter-day Saint theology go together pretty well um, in a lot of ways. But, yeah. oh man, I, I even had my... Kant here, and we're going to talk about deontology and other things, but I guess I'll have to wait for another time. (laughs) Anyway, um, you're right. People will start to see this, and I hope that this will change the way that you think about it. For me, thinking about virtue ethics has really changed the game, because instead of thinking, hey, I have to get this right, I have to do this, I think more in terms of, well, you're practicing, you're working on it. You're trying to learn to habituate your behavior so that when the time comes, you'll be able to act in the right way. Not that you have to do it right every time, but you're working to be able to do it right every time. And so, yeah, that's my plug for virtue ethics and my, you know, don't do theological voluntarism, divine command theory, and don't be a hedonist. Yeah, so that name too, why would you follow that? Hedonism? (laughs) It's got a bit of a bad rap for a good reason. It does. Well, yeah, again, for a good reason, right? Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Okay, that was, I'm going to say part one. 
<laughs> of our ethics, for ethics. Our, our tour through ethics well just and, and just philosophy as well we, and yeah there's so many again like sub outlets subjects that we we talked about the first time oh and just wait we're going to talk about relativism uh next time and that one's going to be a blast oh yeah yeah Gosh. spoiler alert it's not coherent <laughs> okay thanks everyone for listening hope you enjoyed uh part one of ethics and part one of the philosophy tour <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy your lunch. <laughs>